From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. When Rana Hussain's family migrated to Australia from India, they brought with them a passion for cricket, though it wasn't long before Rana fell in love with Australia's biggest sporting code, the AFL. But navigating the blokey, Anglo-centric world of Australian football in the 90s wasn't easy for a young Muslim woman. Her experiences during that time galvanised her to become an advocate for diversity and inclusion in sports. Today, Rana Hussain on the racism problem in Australian sport and how to fight it. So, Rana, have you always been a sports fan? Yeah, well, my parents migrated to Australia in the early 70s from India uh, and I was born and raised in Essendon. Uh, And so living in Essendon, A, and going to school in Essendon meant that the Essendon Football Club was a huge feature of just being a young Aussie kid growing up there. And it is fantastic this start to the Bulldogs versus the Bombers Friday night clash at the cricket ground. When I was 14, I went to my first ever game of AFL football. It was at the MCG. It was Friday night and I just fell in love immediately. It was loud. It was boisterous. The spectacle of the game was really exciting. You know, on the TV, you can't hear the thumps and the tackles. The sound that it makes when... The players kick the ball, the shouting and the loudness of the crowd. This is a contest. All of that just hooked me in and I loved it. And I thought, oh, this is for me. It it absolutely was for me from day one. Okay, so you fell in love with AFL pretty quickly, but... Sports culture back then, it was particularly male-dominated and very blokey. I mean, it still is, but I would say even more so back then. Did you find that that was a barrier to being able to enjoy yourself at the footy? For me as a woman and growing up as a girl, it really wasn't our game. And I've talked about this with my sisters as well. They felt the same. It wasn't really for us as women, and then it wasn't really wasn't for us as people of colour. So it just didn't feel like something that I felt in my bones. Like when you don't see people who look and sound like you, you feel outside of the thing. So AFL, especially back then, was hyper-masculine. It's a huge part of what I would call white culture in this country. And so it absolutely then wasn't speaking to me on that level. You can get it jumping. You know, it was beer ads. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And lingo that I didn't understand. Now the machine with carbos for energy, protein. Blokey type stuff. Trust me, mate. Cougar. And a slice of lemon. You know, even the game itself is quite a physical, aggressive game. Will you be truly prepared for what the future holds? As people from the subcontinent, that's not part of who we are and how we operate. 
especially in the public sphere. But when people come here from other countries, they know that they have to adopt a team. And whether they like it or not, it's a passport into Australian culture and a way to mingle. My brother-in-law was taught when he was looking at migrating here that, you know, pick a team, make sure you mention that in your job interviews because that's part of how people will relate to you and that's breaking down barriers for you. So it's actually a tool for a lot of migrants, which is a great thing, but it's that's also problematic to me because you want the game to also welcome people as they are and not expect that they change to be part of it. Mm. And what about for you personally? How did you experience that feeling of, of not fitting in and feeling like you had to change who you were in order to be a footy fan? It just felt like I had to be a certain type of Australian to be really in. And I noticed, started to feel that discomfort. You know, for Muslims like me, we pray five times a day. So going to a game of football or, you know, a game of cricket, which goes forever, um, you do need to pray throughout. And so we would find places, you know, in the bowels of the MCG, um, in corridors, quiet corridors to pray. And so often it would be a security guard would come up and move us along or people would see us and think, who are they? What are they doing? You know, post 9-11, it was, it was a really heightened feeling of anxiety to do that because you really didn't want people to think, okay, what's going on here? I know for me personally, it put me off going to games and going to the MCG at all. Eventually, I think they had enough requests and enough lobbying that they gave quite a small room actually called, you know, the multi-faith prayer room. And what we noticed was actually a lot of their own staff are Muslim. And so aside from supporters coming to watch a game, their own staff needed a place to pray too. And so now every time I go there, it's half punters and half um, MCC venue management staff. So um, it's been really fascinating. But the difference that made, it was like a weight just lifted off our shoulders. It meant that we suddenly felt this freedom to participate um, in a way that we hadn't before. Mm. And do you remember um, at the time that 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 was announced, um, the commentary around it and how you felt about it? Yeah, it it's a really specific memory because on the day it was announced, it, it was a story, um, the newspapers ran with it, they talked about it on Talkback Radio and former Premier and President of the Hawthorne Footy Club, Jeff Kennett, was on the radio to talk about how he thought it was a silly thing to have done and that, there's, you know, sport is no place for politics and, you know, if we start pandering to one community, what next? And I listened to that and felt so sad and frustrated and I just wanted to say to him, we just love the game. We just want to be able to come and watch sport like every other Australian and if what harm is it doing to have a room where we can go and do what we need to do it felt really personal and it felt really sad. I felt like, okay, maybe if he sat down in front of me and we got to have a conversation about this, he would understand why it was important. And actually a lot of that frustration was, why don't the people in charge understand these things? How come they haven't had these conversations before? And I realised that actually there weren't a lot of people of colour in the industry, a lot of people of colour playing the game, but... 
not a lot of people of colour behind the scenes and I wondered what would happen if more people of colour actually went into the industry. It made me think, yeah, I could be one of those people. I'm, I'm willing to put my hand up because I loved the game so much and just felt so much frustration that I was sort of sick of being on the sidelines and wanted to kind of get in there and say, okay, well, I'll have the conversation. If there's no one else who can do it, I'll do it. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy. Yeah, yeah, if, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rana, there's a lot of focus on recent high-profile examples of racism in Australian sport, particularly in the AFL. Can you tell me about what you see as the main issues? I think a lot of the focus lately has been on verbal abuse, crowd slurs, um, because that's the tangible thing you can hold on to and grasp and understand. But actually, I think the more prominent racism that occurs is that lack of opportunity and that ability to thrive within the system. Um, But yeah, we have seen it. You know, we see it when players of colour speak up, who gets behind them, how much of the media really champions their voices. It takes a groundswell of public support for that to actually happen. And then the media sort of tips over and and reports those stories. Let's look at racism. Let's look at racism and let's have a look. What I'm saying is that there was a, this is what I'm saying, is that there was a culture uh, that normalised racist jokes. You look at Haritia Lumumba, his story at the time when he was first speaking out was framed around mental health issues, and that is deeply problematic. Uh, uh, and, you know, this has a capacity to, to get out bigger than it needs to be, but um, I'm conscious of, of, of H and, and where he's at at the moment and, and, as I said, just hope he's doing well. And as a person of colour, watching that unfold is really scary. I've booed Adam Goods. I've booed Adam really? Goods every time Richmond plays the Swans. And the reason is I'm a diehard Richmond supporter. He stages for free kicks. I boo him. Similarly, Adam Goods, you know, the questions that surrounded him at the time of his booing when he called it out was framed around him playing a victim role and him being difficult. And again, what people didn't realise was people of colour saw that play out and questioned their place in the game as fans and supporters. And and that's the stuff that we have to grapple with. And Rana, you've gone from being a fan of sport to being someone who is actively fighting to make it a place that is more diverse and more inclusive. Can you tell me about some of the work that you've been doing? 
Well, you know, the thing that I talk about the most that makes me feel the most hopeful is the work that I've been able to do at the Richmond Footy Club over my time there. And, you know, the biggest thing is so nerdy and boring, which is an action plan. But <laughs> that to me is is the thing that actually will mean that we can create some change. What we were actually talking about was lighting in the car parks so that people felt safe to come to the club. You know, bathrooms, what they look like, making sure that the facility was accessible to people with disabilities. Uh, and I'm also sitting on the Collingwood Football Club's Do Better anti-racism expert group, which is a group that was a part of the recommendations of the Do Better report, an independent review into the club's responses to incidents of racism and cultural safety in the workplace. And that report found clear evidence of systemic racism in and around the club. And part of, you know, one of the recommendations was that a group of experts be assembled to advise the board on how to implement the recommendations from the report. And I'm one of those people that are sitting on that group. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more about the Do Better report because it, it found structural racism at Collingwood. And when it was leaked, there were it was it was a really big moment, I think, for Australia. It led to Eddie Maguire's resignation. Um, and that story that attracted a lot of national attention because of Maguire's profile and because of how serious the allegations in that report were. So what did you think of the way that that was handled by the AFL? I think when this stuff happens, we all flounder. And, you know, I'll be honest, I wasn't thrilled with the way any of us handled that moment. There was a lot of confusion. It felt chaotic I I would have loved to have seen more leadership from the from the peak body of the game and to me that would have looked like a clear stance a clear statement I think a lot of people have looked at this moment and now have stepped back and are waiting to see what Collingwood does next and I don't think that that's very fair because this isn't just a Collingwood issue. This is an issue that we see across the industry. And while the AFL does do some amazing work in this space, led by Tanya Hosh, it would have been nice to see a, a more collective approach to really denouncing racism or accepting that this is a really important moment in time. But I think for people of colour in particular, what they experience within the AFL industry is probably just very similar to what is going on in the rest of the country, actually. People of colour don't feel like they own the game and they own the industry like other people do, that our voices are just as important or just as relevant or just as prominent as others are. Now, some people would say, well, you're a minority voice, so why would you be? I think a society that looks after its minority voices is a society that's going to thrive and is better for it. And how optimistic do you feel about all of this? Because I think on one hand, the Do Better report, you know, it's great in that it shows what the problem is, but it also, I think, was really depressing because it showed that nothing had changed for so long, despite that issue, you know, being so prevalent. Well, look, I'll say this. Our... Stint, you know, we've been asked to sit on that group for 12 to 18 months, and that's just to advise and 
create steps to implement the recommendations. So it is a long journey and it takes time. And that's one thing I've learned is that things don't happen overnight. I am hopeful that it changes because I have seen change in the time, you know, since I first started getting involved in football to now. There has been so much change for the better, I think, but it's slow. Rana, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Marnie Vanall profiled Rana Hussain in the Saturday paper, and you can find it at thesaturdaypaper.com.au. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, the Australian government has announced a deal with US pharmaceutical giant Moderna for the supply of up to 25 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. The Moderna mRNA vaccine is expected to be able to fully vaccinate 5 million Australians, but a specific timeline for its arrival in Australia has not been confirmed. And senior Israeli military figures were preparing plans for a possible ground invasion of Gaza late on Thursday night. The possible military offensive came as the Israeli Defence Force continued to carry out airstrikes on residential areas in Gaza, killing at least 56 people, including 16 children. We'll be covering the escalating violence in Gaza and what led to it next week on the show. 7am is a daily show from The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. It's produced by Ruby Schwartz, El Marsh, Atticus Basto, Michelle Macklem and Cinnamon Nippard. Brian Compo mixes the show. Our editor is Osman Faruqi. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. New episodes of 7am are released every weekday morning. Subscribe in your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out. I'm Ruby Jones. See you next week.